All right, we're going into our message this morning, so if you'll turn over to the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we were in our scripture reading, and uh, the passage that we have today, we are, to some extent, entering an Easter story. I thought I would skip this passage, come back to it on Easter Sunday, and then I realized we have an Easter cantata that Sunday, and not a whole lot of room for the message that we need to we would need to hear and put some time in it. So uh, the Lord just encouraged me and continued to lead me this week to, to go along and do Easter today. Um, and so we'll do that uh, and see this message. And then we will um, re- return uh, on Easter Sunday to a, a topic. And the choir is preparing uh, a cantata for that day and a reading a little, some orchestration as well, and so we'll plan for Easter, but it's, it's good to, to come to this in this passage. We've had it read to us already, and uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon uh, the scripture today in the message. Father, uh, encourage us as we look to your word. Uh, keep our attention today. Uh, Lord, would the distractions um, be put away, and Lord, as we focus on this uh, hurting widow, and our Savior who cares and loves. In your name that we pray, amen. In Sparta, when I was pastor there, we had a dear lady in our church who was the organist. Her name was Erna Wagner. Um, She was a widow in our church. Her husband was in Vietnam and... Uh, They were married 10 years, and he came back from Vietnam and uh, had cancer. Um, He ended up dying not long after he came back, uh, and she had been married only 10 years, had three boys um, in uh, in her home, and so was faced with raising those three children uh, in church, taking the leadership, uh, the provision of the home, and uh, so I became the pastor. Sure, her sons had already uh, gone and moved out of the house. And uh, her, her second son, at the age of 40, um, was diagnosed with Parkinson's. Really, not long within the first year of my ministry there, um, uh, Troy was, uh, had gotten so bad that he had needed to be put into a nursing home, a care center. So really at 41 years old, uh, only having the disease, probably it had been in his body for, for years, and, uh, but it brought it very um, uh, quickly. And uh, so I remember for about a year, I would go with uh, this widowed mother uh, with, uh, to see her son to the point where he all, all the way came down until they moved him into hospice care. And, um, and I remember being there uh, when he was taking his last breaths. And at uh, 42 years old, I believe he was, to watch this mother uh, with her other two living sons standing there with her. And uh, as she watches her young boy, still young, um, pass away. I remember preaching that funeral uh, with that uh, mother and thinking about this text of Scripture. In fact, I preached this text of Scripture at the funeral as we see our Savior faced with a widow who has lost her son. 
When we come to this, following the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, Jesus concluded, Luke records two back-to-back miracles in the first 17 verses. And with the, the backdrop of the sermon, both of these miracles are connected by Luke. Both are tied to the ministry, interesting, back in the Old Testament, to the prophet Elijah and Elisha. Remember, I made reference to 1 Kings chapter 5 last week when we were talking about this Gentile centurion who was told about Jesus and came to Jesus for help. And we come to a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 where Naaman is told about a prophet of God who can heal him and a Gentile man who comes to Elisha. In chapter 4 of 2 Kings, Elisha had come in contact with a woman who had lost her son. A, a son in uh, this woman of Shunem in this area. In 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah comes face to face with a widow of Zarephath, whose son has passed away. Both Elijah and Elisha raise the boys in these two separate stories in the book of Kings recorded for us. Readers of of the New Testament who are coming across or listening to this by Luke being recorded would have remembered those Old Testament stories immediately recognizing the connection of these two specific events. In fact, look at the original crowd after Jesus performs the second miracle and look at their conclusion in verse 16 of this chapter. And there came fear on all, and they glorified God, saying this, that a great prophet is risen among us, and that God has visited His people. So the recognition of the original crowd that day, when they saw this miracle happen, they recognized a prophet of God has come and visited us. God's presence, and they glorified God and were afraid. Connecting the story to Elisha, And Elijah. Now Luke is the only gospel to record this event of the widow of Nain. This is unique to Luke. This section of Luke is showing us that Jesus is not only just merely a man or prophet. But he is more than that. He is the one who is able to raise the dead. This section precedes the the group that is sent by John the Baptist questioning the ministry of the Messiah. Look at verse 18, just after the verse that that we finished reading. And the disciples of John showed him all these things. And John calling unto him, two of his disciples sent them to Jesus. So, as John receives the word of what Jesus is doing throughout Judea and Galilee, a group is sent to Jesus from John, questioning, Lord, are you the Messiah? Are you going to set up your kingdom? We'll talk about that next week. John seemed to be having some doubts. If he was setting up his kingdom, why was John still in prison? Why were the Romans still on the throne? Why was, why was the chaos still happening? Where was the deliverance? And Jesus would answer that question. The previous miracle is unique in that Jesus marvels for the only time over a person's faith. Do you remember last week as we studied that this man, this centurion, this one who knows authority, says, Jesus, you don't even have to come into my home. Just say it and your word will command. 
And Jesus marvels at this Gentile who has such great faith. And he says, not even in Israel, nowhere have I found someone with such great faith. Jesus shows this compassion on a Gentile man who is in need. And here, Jesus is going to show compassion upon a poor widow who is in need. You know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is again demonstrating his power. The power of his word. Via wireless, Jesus could say or even think, be clean. And someone miles away could wake up on their deathbed clean, healed. Jesus doesn't even have to be in the room. Jesus can come to a funeral, the death of a boy or a young man, and he can touch him and speak to him. And he will rise from the dead. Jesus is demonstrating what his word can do. But he's also demonstrating that who he is. Is the word of God. Now I want us to look at this story. Very similar to how we looked at the story from last week. I want to start out in the location. Look at the place that the scripture records this event taking place. In verse 11. And it came to pass... The day after, or soon after, that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him, and much people. In chapter 7 and verse 1, Jesus finished his sermon and then went down to the city of Capernaum. Now in verse 11, he enters into a city called Nain. And the scripture says, on the next day, or soon after... In other words, we're in the middle of Jesus' itinerant ministries, traveling from place to place, preaching and teaching all throughout Galilee. But people are also coming to him from all the regions of Judea, from the farthest portions of the land of Israel. They are traveling to see him. And even while Jesus goes from Capernaum to Nain, there is a great crowd who travels with him. Now, I want you to see the contrast in these two stories. Luke points this out. The city of Capernaia and the city of Nain. Capernaia, we know, is a large, bustling city and village. It's the hub of the region of Galilee. It had the Roman base where there were centurions. We saw that in the uh, the service before or the uh, last week. It was close to Tiberias where uh, where the governor was of this area. It was on the Sea of Galilee. It was of the crossroads of the ancient Roman highway. There was Peter's house. There was a beautiful synagogue. There were wealthy people. There was a lot of travel and activity. This is the place that Jesus, according to Matthew, had brought his family. And there he makes his home base along that fisherman's area along the Sea of Galilee. Jesus would preach and teach in Capernaum. A lot of miracles will take place in this city. The city of Capernaum is mentioned more than any other city in the New Testament besides Jerusalem. Then we come to the city of Nain. You know, the city of Nain is only mentioned in one place in all of the Bible, Old and New Testament. And it's right here. It's not mentioned anywhere else. One time. It is everything the opposite of Capernaum. It was 25 miles away up in the mountains. No main roads went through there. No one accidentally traveled to Nain. You stumbled up, you, 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 did, you probably didn't even stumble upon it. It wouldn't even, you blinked and you would pass through it and not even know that you were there. 
Some have indicated that there were no more than 200 people who lived in the city of Nain. It was only six miles from the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It was situated on the eastern portion of the Jezreel Valley in a place called that the, the Jewish people would call Little Mount Hermon, just a small little hill. In fact, it wasn't even the major city or village on that hill. There were two other villages, one on one side of the hill, one on the other uh, of, of name that were more important to them and that would go back to the story in the book of Kings. There was a little village called Endor. Mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Do you remember in that story, Saul is encamped against the Philistines? And he attempts that he wants to find out a revelation from God. And so what he's going to do is he's going to go and see if he can speak to the dead. And so he goes to this little village of Endor where there is a, a witch, a sorcerer who is hiding out. And he clothes himself and he walks into the sorcerer and he asks for her to speak to Samuel and bring him back from the dead. There is also in 2 Kings chapter 4, just on the other side of the city of Nain, there is a little village called Shunem. It is there in 2 Kings 4 that Elisha will visit a woman, a Shunammite woman, and there she will raise his son from the dead. In fact, I believe that story, you remember, he's out working with his father and he gets a heat stroke and he says, oh, my head, my head, and he falls over dead. Love the way the scripture tells us about that story. And then she calls for Elisha to come and Elisha comes and heals this woman's son. However, as we see this passage and we see this little city compared to Capernaum, Capernaum was known all around. Capernaum had all the busyness and the, and the hustle and the bustle of Jesus' ministry, had the home of Peter and Jesus' healings and even Jesus' location of where he made his base. But Nain was nowhere. Why Nain? Why does Jesus plan a trip from Capernaum to Nain? According to this text, it seems that this is the only destination on the trip. It's not like Jesus tells his disciples, now we're going to go make a week's trip and we'll happen to stop by a few towns along the way. No, the way the text seems to read is that he goes from Capernaum specifically to this little village on the side of the hill that is out in the nowhere on the hill just to be in this city. I believe as we see this place not known of any historical value, no disciples were from there, there were no main roads there, why in the world would Jesus travel 25 miles out in the mountains for one day? Took a whole day for him to travel there and he shows up. I believe as we see this morning we understand that God had a plan for Jesus. And Jesus was sensitive to that plan. He was obedient to the plans and the directions of God. This obscure place, a whole day's trip, out of the way, in a little village of name, God was going to have a divine meeting between Jesus and this funeral procession. And that was the only reason that Jesus was there. God knew it. Jesus knew it. Nobody else knew it. When no one else knows, God knows. 
Mark it down. God knows. He has a plan and a purpose for everything that he does. And the same reason that Jesus, the scripture says, must needs go through Samaria is the same reason that Jesus must needs go to Nain. There was a person there that Jesus was going to meet. And of all of the things that Jesus was going to do, it was for that one person that Jesus would meet. So Jesus tells his disciples, pack your bags, boys. We're going 25 miles out in the middle of nowhere to a no place to meet a nobody. Because God's plan is to touch somebody's life. I want you to also think of the sovereignty of God. God is always in control. Interesting, as I was studying this passage, even in connection to the previous story, the scripture says, on the next day, or soon after. In other words, you have the story of the healing of the servant of the, 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 the centurion. And then the next day, Jesus travels all day long and comes probably in the evening time as the sun is setting. And he comes face to face with this funeral. Most would conclude, as I was reading, that the Jewish people would put to, um, uh, to, to the grave within 24 hours of the death. Most of the time when a person would die, if they died in the morning, by the evening the funeral service was already planned and, and the procession was already in place. So think about this. Possibly before Jesus ever left Capernaum that morning, that son was still alive. By the time he made it that evening. It, and, and in fact, it connected to the next story, the day or the previous story, the day before. When Jesus was summoned to the centurion's home, to the deathbed of a servant that was dear unto him. In Nain, 25 miles away, there was a son that was sick, getting ready to die. And before the person died in the centurion's home, Jesus would speak a word and he would be healed. But the widow at Nain would come face to face with the death of a loved one. But once Jesus arrived, he shows up. This journey that has taken place. And there he comes face to face with a group of people who are now grieving in sorrow, in pain, suffering because of the death of this loved one. And it seems like the whole town has come out for the procession. The whole town has come out for the funeral. As I think about this, God allowed this widow to experience loss again while the rich centurion was spared the loss of his servant. Do you have a tendency to ask the question, why? Why, God? And I read you a couple of verses, Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Can I read you another verse from Isaiah? Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the beginning from the end. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them who are loved, to them who are called according to his purpose. You see, our lives are in the hands of an almighty God. And the same God that was superseding and controlling the situation of the servant and the centurion was the same God that was looking to this widow as she watched her son take his last breath. God was in control of both. God was there for both. Our lives are in his hand. Job said this in Job 12 and verse 10. In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Have you ever been to the point in your life where you've asked God why? Why me, Lord? Why do I have to be the one going through this? Why do I have to be the one at this funeral? Why my son? Why my children? Why my spouse? Why my health? Why me, God? And I would say you could put yourself in a similar situation as this widow. You could put yourself in a similar situation as Job. But I want you to understand in your questions and in your doubts, don't ever forget that God has a plan. God has a purpose. And He will accomplish His purpose in your life. He will never have you travel down a road that He has not foreseen and that He is not in control of. All things work together for good. So as we see this little village, this little city of Nain, where this widow who has probably never been outside her city as far as we know, and yet God is in control. Notice not only this location, but notice the problem. We have a problem in the previous story. We have a problem in this story. And I want you to just see, look at this sad home that has come, the sorrow and the pain that has come to this woman. Look at verse 12. And now when he came nigh to this gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. We come face to face with the funeral service of a son. This was a day that no mother ever desires to see. No one ever wishes for a day like this. There are many here today who have faced this type of heartache. A close loved one. And you know exactly what she's going through. She's a widow. She's been down this road before. She is familiar with loss and grief. Now, for the second time, she's experiencing loss and grief. She's lost her only son. Every Jewish woman desired and lived to have a boy. Hannah, in 1 Samuel 1, prays and desires that God would give her a son. A boy meant an heir. A son, an only son, was something that was precious and special. Now she has left no provider, no hope, no help. This lady is a picture of, of 
a, a, a person who is utterly destitute and helpless. To be a widow without a son meant now she had no way of providing for herself. Her son was her source of provision. Her son was the source of what she had and how she could continue to live. And now that had been taken from her too. Now they come outside the city. The whole town has come out with this sad mother. Sorrow upon sorrow. Interesting enough, in the Old Testament, the Jews pictured the most sorrowful thing or painful thing that could come upon a person was to lose their only son. Amos chapter 8 and verse 10, when God uses the comparison of the judgment upon Israel in the last days, listen to what is said. It will be like a time of mourning for an only son, a lamentation that will be most bitter. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 actually paints this picture one day when Israel will look upon them or will look upon him in whom they have pierced. And when they see him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping for a firstborn. So in the Jewish culture, the most pain and sorrow that a person could ever go through is when a mother or a father would be at the funeral of their only son. Have you ever known pain like this? Death has a way of bringing separation, loss, and grief. The scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. Death separates. It always has and it always will. And every time you come to a funeral service and you come to um, the death of a loved one, you are reminded of the sting of death. The fact that death separates. And we weep and we mourn even in John chapter 11 when Jesus came to that funeral of his friend, the shortest book in the Bible or verse in the Bible where Jesus weeps over the sorrow of death. Oh, as we see this lady who is such a sad home and a sad plight, sorrow upon sorrow, this woman is very familiar with pain, grief, and suffering. Look at the persons or the two people in this story in verse 13. And the scripture says, And when the Lord saw her, two people are presented in this story and they're very important. It's the Son of God, Jesus, and the widow. The emphasis of the story in this passage is on the woman, not the son. Just like the previous story is upon the centurion, not the servant. Notice the verbs that are mentioned here. It was his mother. She was a widow. Much people were with her when, she, when he saw her. He said to her at the end of the passage, he delivered him to his mother. The mother is the center figure here outside of Jesus himself. The story is about the hurting mother, not the hurting son. And the other person in this story who is the most important character is Jesus himself. 
Notice verse 12. When He came. Verse 13. When the Lord saw. Verse 13. He had compassion. Verse 14. He came. He touched. Verse 14 again. He said to him. Verse 15. He delivered him. I mean, Jesus is in every single verse. Just like this woman is in every single verse. Now notice in this passage about Jesus here, nobody asked him to come. No one was sent on behalf of the woman. There were no delegates. There were no elders. There were no friends sent to call Jesus to come to this hurting woman's side. At the head of this sad processional, this lonely, painful woman is here. And notice in verse 12, the scripture says, Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold. Behold. That's an interesting word here. In my study this week, this word behold is more than just look. It means and it happened. Now, I I don't believe in chance. I don't believe the scripture believes in chance. But interesting enough, after 25 miles of traveling, just at the right moment that Jesus comes to the edge of town, would you know it, the procession is coming through the gate and these two groups collide. It's not an accident. That's why Luke says, behold, guess what? On the time that Jesus shows up at the city, at the exact moment, here comes the head. Two groups. One group processing out, going to the cemetery. Another group that is processing in as Jesus is leading. And here they come and they meet face to face. Have you ever been part of a funeral procession? I like being down south with the processions here, there's, there's a little bit more of a respectful spirit in the south about funerals than are about the north. Um, in fact, in a lot of northern cities and a lot of the funerals that I've been part of, they, they don't even use uh, police officers anymore to, um, to stop the red lights or to process the groups through to the cemetery. Every man's for himself. People don't even stop on the side of the road or anything when you're going down and they see the hearse and, and, uh, and the lights that are, uh, uh, that are going on. Usually there's a yellow light on, on the front car uh, of, of, uh, of the procession and people just zoom right on by. You know, people will jump right in. Here in the south, at least it's, it still seems that way. I see it much more regularly that when you're going along, most people will pull off to the side. I was a part of a funeral up in Tennessee area, and we were coming down a four-lane highway on top of that. And the people all the way across the medium were pulling over and stopping on the side of the road. And I saw one family, it was a mother in a minivan with a bunch of her kids, actually got out of the vehicle, lined her children up on the side of the car, and made them put their hand over their heart out of respect of what was happening. In the Jewish culture, if you came in contact with a funeral procession, it was proper etiquette that no matter where you were going or what agenda you had, if you came face to face with a funeral procession, you got into the back line and you followed them to the cemetery. It was respectful. It was part of procedure. 
And so here Jesus in this group, as they come up to the city gates, and there this widow and, and this son is being processed out to the cemetery, Jesus stops the group getting ready with the disciples. They know, oh, all right, now, now we've got to go on out, and here we are. We're going to get in line. But Jesus doesn't just do that. He stops everything in its tracks. Look at what verse 13 says. And when the Lord saw her. Notice it wasn't that he saw the boy. It wasn't that he saw the crowd. It wasn't that he saw the village. But he saw her. Scripture says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Beholding the evil and the good. What a look. Some have indicated because he sees her may mean that she is leading the procession and that she is first. But remember, this is an encounter not between Jesus and a group of people or Jesus in a city. This is between Jesus and an individual person. Jesus saw her. I want you to know something today, my friend. You may be in a situation of loneliness and hurt and sorrow frustration, and disappointment. You may think that no one knows, no one sees, no one cares. No one knows or sees what I'm going through. I'm all alone. But you mark it down here from this passage today, Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus cares. Jesus is moved. Jesus knows your sorrow and your pain. He knows your heartache. He knows your disappointments. He knows your battle and your suffering. He knows your bondage in your sin. He knows your disappointment. He knows the things that are in your life. And that you may think you're all alone and no one cares. And Jesus came face to face with this woman. And he saw her. And he had compassion on her. This word compassion is a deep word of emotion. It's not the word for love. It's not any of the words that are used in the Greek for love. However, it is the strongest word in the Greek for sympathy. Emotion. One translation states this. His heart was shaken. He was moved towards her. In other words, Jesus sees this sad plight of this woman who has already experienced death. Now she's experiencing the death of her, her, her only son. And Jesus sees her, sees the weeping that she's going through and this sad situation of this loneliness and separation. And his heart is moved. He knows your loss. He knows your pain. In Matthew chapter 9, the scripture says, Jesus saw the multitude and was moved with compassion. Luke chapter 19, the scripture says, And Jesus saw Zacchaeus in the tree. Matthew 8, Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law as she was hurting. Luke 8, Jesus saw the woman with the issue of blood and he looked at her. Luke 23, Jesus saw the thief on the cross as he looked to him in his pain and suffering. Jesus is a man of sorrows and Jesus came to feel our pain, feel our loss, and feel our separation. Don't get bitter. Don't doubt. Don't get angry. Don't lose heart or lose hope. Jesus knows what you're going through and he feels your pain. 
Hebrews 4 and verse 14, 15 says this, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. E.J. Rawlings wrote this, Are there crosses too heavy to carry? And burdens too heavy to bear? Are there heartaches and tears and anguish that no one seems to care? Are there shadows of deep disappointment and trust that have proven untrue? Has the darkness of night settled around you? Has your hope and your faith wavered too? Has the storms overshadowed your sunshine and life lost the traction for you? Have the dreams that you've cherished been broken? Is your soul filled with bitterness too? Standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. He's the friend who always cares and understands. Standing somewhere in the shadows, you will find him. And you'll know him by the nail prints in his hands. Listen, there is a Savior who cares he loves you. He knows what you're going through. And look at the power of this story in Jesus in verse, 14, uh, verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, weep not. In other words, don't cry. Or, in fact, the way it's written in the Greek, stop crying. I don't know about you. But it seems a little bit insensitive at first glance to tell this woman to stop crying. I mean, what an uncaring thing to say as this woman is going through such deep grief. That's not the first thing you say when you come to a funeral wake at the visitation. And you're down the line to procession and you get to the front portion. And there the loved ones are weeping and crying and grieving as they're hugging one another's neck. And you look and you say... Stop it. Just everyone, stop crying. He's in heaven and it'll be okay. That's not the polite thing to say. It may be true. There may be hope. But yet there is still this process of grief. There is still this process of weeping. You don't walk into a funeral home with the loss of a loved one and say, stop crying, you'll be okay. You'll get over it. However, when Jesus turns to this woman who is weeping and he sees her and he tells her to stop weeping, wipe your eyes and watch this. Jesus can say what he said with sympathy and compassion and love and care because he's getting ready to do something that no one else has the ability to do. Do you remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who weep now, for they shall laugh. You know what Jesus is getting ready to do? In this story, he's getting ready to demonstrate that principle that beatitude lived out for everyone and his disciples to see. He's going to take a woman who in her sorrow and her pain is weeping over the separation of death and sin. And in a moment, her and her son are going to be walking back home laughing 
with joy because of the power of the word of Jesus. Jesus is going to demonstrate. He's going to use an opportunity to get ready to do something in the situation here that only he can do. All death, all sorrow, all pain, all suffering will cease when Jesus deems it in the Father's will. Notice the scripture in verse 14. And he came and he touched the bier, which is the, the coffin or the stretcher. And they that bear, bear him stood still and then he said, Notice the verbs. He saw, he had compassion, he came, he touched, he said, he delivered. This is all by the power of the word of God. Notice the actions here in these words. This is love. Jesus is demonstrating the Sermon on the Mount lived out before us. He is modeling to his disciples what it is to live with love and care for those around you. Jesus came to her. Jesus saw her. Jesus was moved by what she was moved for. Jesus touched. Jesus said. Jesus delivered. Now listen, there are limits that we have that we cannot do because we are not the Savior. However, Jesus is demonstrating for these disciples that when he leaves, Peter, James, John, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, I want you to do this exact thing. I want you to look. I want you to have compassion. I want you to approach people. I want you to travel to cities like name where there are hurting people. I want you to reach out with the love of Christ. I want you to demonstrate what the power of God can do in the lives of people who turn to Jesus Christ and feel his power and the power of his name. Jesus came and the scripture says he moved towards the bier or the coffin. And here, as he reaches out, the scripture says he touches this coffin or this stretcher. And when he touches this, he said. In other words, he addressed the young man. He says, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Now, interesting of the three stories that Jesus raises someone from the dead. The story of Jairus' daughter, where he speaks to her and he says, little lamb or little maiden, or little girl. When he's in John chapter 11, and he's at the cemetery of Lazarus, he cries out in that cemetery, Lazarus, come forth! And here in this passage, Jesus addresses this man. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go to a funeral, I don't usually talk to the person in the coffin. There have been a few times where I've been in that room as the pastor all alone. Just me and them. Family's not there yet. Funeral home directors are not there. I'm just, I'm just sitting in the chapel or standing in the chapel waiting for, for those to come. And it's just me and that person. Now, if you walked into a room at that time and I was carrying on a conversation with the one in the coffin... You would, you would think there was something, something wrong or I was in a deep place of grief and sorrow. But I can tell you in those places, and pardon my English, ain't nobody ever responded to me when I said something to them. But when Jesus speaks to this boy, the scripture said, and he that was dead sat up. I mean, do you know how utterly ridiculous that is? Someone mentioned that there are levels of life, healthy, sick, 
sickly, I see you sick. All right. But there aren't levels of dead. It's not like you're dead and mostly dead and almost dead, all right? No, no, you're either dead or you're alive. It just doesn't happen. Dead people don't sit up and start talking. I mean, not really dead people. I, I got an article from two weeks ago of, of a woman who woke up in the morgue. All right? So in Ankeny, Iowa, which is right across the street from our sister lives, said that after the 12-hour shift at a nursing home, a woman in hospice care, they could not find her heartbeat and hadn't noticed the woman breathing, according to the report. After 90 minutes, the staff expressed and pronounced the patient dead. The funeral home came, and the coroner put the body in the bag, carried it to the Ankeny Funeral Home crematorium, where the staff members discovered she was still alive. Despite the fact that neither the funeral home employees nor the second nurse practitioner had seen any indication of life in the woman, at approximately 8.26 a.m., funeral hall staff unzipped the bag and observed resident number one's chest moving up and down and the person grasping for air. Can you imagine the fright? First of all, of the woman in the bag to realize where you are. And then second of all, to the person who unzipped for the first time in all of his working or her working career to see the eyes and the breath of someone who's supposed to be dead looking back at you. I don't know if it's you, but I would leave that profession right then and there. That would be enough for me. You see, this doesn't happen Once the body has died, once the brain has become dead, once the stage of rigor mortis sets in, there is no coming back. We have places where someone has had a cardiac arrest and you can resuscitate them in a measure of time. We have sometimes where the the body uh, heart rate is so low or maybe a person who is in a coma and you don't necessarily know it. But listen, once a person passes out in this life and enters in eternity, there is no coming back in and of themselves. Death is sure. However... Jesus comes to this coffin, stops the pallbearers, and Jesus touches the stretcher, speaks to the boy, and boom, the dead man raises. In other words, the stages of this miracle, the blood, the breath, the the brain, All the body parts, everything to function. This is a miracle that only God could do. At one moment, he's stiff, hard, lifeless, not breathing. And the next, he's sitting up talking. That's what God can do. That's the power of Jesus over death and the grave. When he speaks, the dead will listen. The voice of Jesus I want to give you a spiritual lesson before we close this morning. All of us are spiritually dead. 
All of us without Jesus Christ are born into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all spiritually dead without Jesus Christ. And do you know what Jesus can do for you today in your spiritual rigor mortis, in your, in your stiffness of your heart? Jesus can speak into your life and he can take a person who is dead and he can make them live again. That's what Jesus can do for you if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. He longs to do that for you. Now look as we close in verse 15. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. Notice this last sentence. And he delivered him to his mother. Do you know how tender and compassionate and caring that statement is? I mean, Jesus helps this man off the cot. This is Jesus, isn't it? The other guys aren't touching him. Jesus helps the gentleman off the cot and then carries him, not, not carries him in his arm, but probably brings his hand and the mother's hand and joins what has been separated by the power of death. Jesus, with the power of life, has now brought them back. He could have said, little boy or young man, follow me. Be the 13th disciple. That's not what he does. He gives him back. You see, the story is about the hurting mother. I don't know if this young man was, knew the Lord, according to the Old Testament, and was in heaven and messed up his time running around the streets of gold to call him back. The boy was not necessarily hurt. But the woman was hurt. And he used my imagination here. Jesus could have said to the young man, just earlier, I saw your poor mother coming out of the gates. She was in such a terrible shape. No husband, no son, no hope, weeping. And my heart went out to her. And your mother was hurting. Now you take her home, fix her a meal, and spend all night talking and laughing together. Jesus brought together the, what death had separated. And I want to remind you this morning. Those of you that have experienced grief and suffering and separation. Maybe a spouse or a child or a loved one or a parent. For those who know Jesus Christ. One day Jesus will re unite you with that loved one and the joy that will happen in heaven when we meet our loved ones in the air. That's the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of what Jesus can do. I mentioned at the beginning of the service to Erna Wagner, who was a widow, who lost her husband and had lost her second son, Todd. A couple years later, I was again at that funeral home. Her 41-year-old son, Troy, three boys. The middle one had died of Parkinson's. Her 41-year-old son had had Parkinson's. And at 41, was again, second time, dead. Two boys that she had lost within five years from this terrible disease. And yet, as I was standing there, another pastor was performing the service that day. 
and I looked at this woman who was hurting the passage that was read from 1 Corinthians 15 of the fact that one day Jesus Christ will come and those who are dead in um, in, in Christ will arise and God will take and bring back those people who, who know him and can bring what death has separated back together. Jesus hears the hearts that are hurting. He knows what you're going through. Have faith. Turn to him. Jesus is a comforter and a uniter. He brings together what death separates and he longs to bring together those who have, who have died in him to those who are suffering with grief, loneliness. Look to him. And not only can Jesus stop the progress of death from happening like the servant, but he can also make the dead live again. As we see in this passage, the great power that Jesus has over death Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for what you did in the life of this mother who was hurting and giving us an illustration and a lesson of, of the power of your word. That you can speak and the dead will live. You can speak and those who are spiritually dead can have life. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ the power of the resurrection. Lord, I pray as we see this passage, would we stand in awe as this crowd did? Would we worship you and would we draw close to you? Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for seeing those who are hurting today, those who feel alone that no one else cares, to know that you care for them and you love them and you long to show compassion to them if they will just reach out to you follow you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we won't sing, but I've asked the instrumentalist to play Only Trust Him, Only Trust Him. As we go to the invitation, maybe your heart is heavy today with what you are going through. Maybe you're still struggling over loss and grief. As you look at the Word of God today and you see the promise and you can trust in the Savior, he has a plan. He's in control. Nothing that you face in this life is out of His control and out of His plan. He longs for you to know His love and His care and His compassion. The song says, Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. And He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand to your feet? Before we close the service in prayer as they play through one more time could I call your attention to look to the Savior who longs to give you comfort in your suffering who longs to bring you peace in your heartache if you will trust him maybe you don't know Jesus as your Savior at all you're still in your sin you're blind you need to trust Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers to you life, forgiveness. Only trust him, only trust him. He will save you.
thank you. You can look this way. Thank you for your attention this morning. Um, we do have uh, a family, Oren and Mary Vallejo, who has come, and uh, they have moved to the area, and they would like to join in the membership of our church. They've given their testimony of salvation, and uh, they are coming from a, a sister church in the Birmingham area, and um, we, are, we are happy to have them join in the part. They've already been visiting here and coming, and they've given their testimony and uh, they would like to join in membership. We need a motion and a second to accept uh, their membership. A motion, Mr. Jim McCoy, a second, Don Klitschke. All in favor, raise your right hand and oppose the light sign. A motion carried. Brother Oren and Mary, if you could come and stand in front of the communion table here, I'd like to ask after we close in prayer that our members would come and just give them a right hand of Christian fellowship. And then the Stedmans will be in the lobby there if you could uh, wish them God's blessings as God uh, moves them on. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning and the service. Pray, pray that you would uh, be with uh, Oren and Mary as they join into membership of our church. Uh, Lord, that they find a place where they can continue to serve and grow in Christ. Lord, would we come alongside as the family of God to uh, encourage them and uh, be a blessing to them? Uh, Lord, would you, pray, would you be with the Stedmans as they make a transition here in the days ahead? Lord, I ask that you would, uh, you would, you would bless them in their, in their future ministry and where they are. And Lord, would you bring in people into the church um, like this family today that would, that would replace and, and, um, and minister and serve. Uh, thank you for the, the years that you've uh, given us with them. And I pray that you would bless them as they continue on. Be with us today as we go. Keep us safe. If you, uh, Terry, you're coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.